Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Writing the Rapids, the show where I, Joe Balecki, talk to writers about writing, and very often those writers have been recommended to me by writers who have previously been on the show to talk about writing. This month, Dan Eastman was recommended to me by Zach Smith and Kevin Gonzalez. Go listen to those episodes if you like this episode, and if you liked those episodes, you'll like this one. Dan Eastman, his new book is Watertown. He lived most of his life in Watertown, New York. He currently resides in Allentown with his wife. He enjoys dark lakes and heavy snowfalls. Before we get into the conversation, let's go ahead and ask you for money. Hi, can you give me some money? You can do so at patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe. I got three Patreon tiers. Each one has its own unique benefits and they're all laid out at patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe. If a one-time donation is more your thing, paypal.me slash noisemakerjoe is a place you can go to toss me money on a non-recurring basis. Or you can buy my book, Tired. It's out through Alien Buddha Press and it's available on Amazon, just search tired Joe Balecki and you'll find it. Now, that's enough of me asking you to do things for me. Here's me doing something for you. It's my conversation with Dan Eastman. The last time I talked to Kevin over voice chat, we were talking about your book. Um, I think it was like not being recorded or something, but he, he mentioned how there were a lot of pre-orders coming from Watertown. And I said, oh, that's cool. And then I read the book and I got this huge wave of like sympathetic anxiety. So what has the local response um, been? Are people like, you know, noticing you in the street? Have you been on the, the local PBS or anything like that? I actually I actually did get an, uh, a woman reached out to me from the local PBS and she did like a 10 minute interview with me. Um which I guess so th- she did this back in May and she was like, uh, this isn't going to be available until October. Oh, so, oh well, that'll be cool. I have a little bump then because I'm, I mean, the shelf life of a, of a book is like two months. So, right. Uh, right. so that'll be nice. But, um, I went to Watertown. I revisited probably two weeks ago, maybe three weeks. And, um, it was a, a very positive reaction. I had, I'd met up with a, a friend of mine from, from school, and I, I got to meet her partner. And um, then we went to this bar, this dive bar. And uh, one of my friends who now lives in Texas, who played music there, he was like uh, having a. Show. It was like this intimate get together. There might have been like forty or fifty people there that had come out to see his music, but people were coming up and saying, "Didn't you write a book?" Mm-hmm. And that that meant a lot to me because um, I don't know I I wasn't really expecting anyone to read this little book of poetry like I I I've said before like I kind of wrote this manuscript as a as a goof and sent it to Zach and Kevin uh, like like friends do just in the lit community kind of screwing around and then it became this thing where everyone from Watertown seems to be reading it like Kevin still messages me sometimes and says. It, it blows my mind when people from Watertown are ordering Watertown and <laughs> I'll ask who it is. I have no idea who it is. So there's just, I've gotten messages from, I got a message on Facebook. I'm like hardly ever on Facebook anymore, but I got this message from a guy who sent me this picture. So I had to like accept the message cause it was a stranger. And the guy's like, is this your book? And I go show picture and it's some girl holding my book. And I'm like, Oh shit, here comes the, who are you sending like 
sending this to my wife or something. And, uh, I was like, yeah, this is my book. And he was like, oh, we're reading it every night and we love it. And to, to get messages like that from strangers has been, um, flattering. Yeah. That's wonderful. That's, that's so good to hear. Um, what, I think you, you might mention it in the book, but I can't remember what, how big is Watertown? Like what's the population about, do you know? So when I, it's grown a lot. Mm. Um, when I, when I was growing up there, I would say, you know, Watertown and all surrounding areas, probably 30 to 50,000. I I mean, that's, it would top off at that, at that. But now, um, Fort Drum is this like huge, like pre-deployment military base. So I think around the time that I would have been graduating high school, they were having this huge expansion and it's only ramped up since then. So when they have this, when they have expansions, you have to then add fast food chains and restaurants and retail outlets and everything. And it, it does take some of the, as much as it was this like economically decrepit place when I was living there, now it's like, where's the charm? Mm-hmm. Because it looks exactly like where I live now, which is Allentown, Pennsylvania. So, um, yeah, it's something is lost when you start adding these ubiquitous chains to to a location, to a locale. Right. Yeah. And that's, which that's was, something that like I've I've learned to consider a little bit more after reading like David Leo Rice stuff like that about like. Um, you know, like thinking about what it takes to keep a town alive. Um, mm-hmm. I remember I was I was watching some some YouTube videos that just came out about um Steven Pinker. He's a economist who basically he's like everything's getting better because fewer people make a dollar a day than they used to. Um, without really accepting the idea that the poverty line is like way higher than that anyway right. um but yeah this idea of like yes but we're bringing we're bringing jobs in um but like at, at what cost sort of thing um absolutely yeah i feel like you, you sort of you can bring jobs in but it, it you it's at the expense of you know um, personality, like character and culture to, to a place. And you just have this, everything becomes a a monolith. Yeah. So the, the writing, I like the idea that it was kind of as a goof when I was talking to Zach about 50 barn poems, it was kind of the same sort of thing. Um, but I mean, that's obviously not to say that like you didn't take the writing of it seriously. Um, but so those two things, like taking, you know, taking your craft seriously, but also having fun with it. Um, what is the experience of, of writing in general like for you? Uh, I, I, I've, within the past year, I would say probably whenever COVID began, probably, uh, I was, I was like, oh, I gotta, I gotta write my my, my masterpiece, but, um, uh, nothing, I, I think I've had this, um, transformative, like 
my my thinking has transformed. Like I I used to be one of those people who like thought of this like put the art on a pedestal and would think of it as this like burden that I have to carry around. Like I've got to write this this masterpiece. And um, when it, I think it was sometime last summer, I was like, no, if I work a full time job, I just want to write now to have fun. And and obviously, like you can you can take it. I mean, any hobby can be serious. Like you can take it seriously and and hone it. Um, but you know, it's not something that I want to stress over at all anymore. So I, I don't have like a. I wouldn't say I have a schedule. Uh, I would. I've tried to you know sit down for an hour every day and write, but um, it never really comes out the way that that I want it to. Like I I just find myself like completely passionless for what is coming out. And I know that that's part of the part of the process for a lot of people. But again, I, I stress enough for 40 hours a week. Um, I'm in my mid thirties. I have a, you know, we have dogs, we have a marriage and we like to do things. So writing is, is a decompression exercise more than anything now. Okay, good. I think Does that makes sense. Yeah, it makes absolute sense. I'm, um so do you like do you write on your phone then sometimes Abs- yep okay yep absolutely cool. yeah the notes app is just full of like little poems and and whatnot i think i i when i wrote watertown i was literally walking around watertown and writing little things saving it in the notes app and i think i just like they have that feature where you can just like email your entire note so i just i think it came out to be I mean, a poem is not a full page but uh, it was a hundred and something pages of just mess that I had emailed Zach and Kevin. And that was when they were like, Oh, you can actually probably flesh this out a bit and tighten it up. And maybe we could publish it in 2021. Uh, so that was, that was the first time I had experimented with writing on my phone with poetry. And, um, and I think it was at Kevin's advice that to just write stuff on your phone, just have fun with it. And, and of course it worked. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was, that was my experience with it. I, I, I think the book is quite successful at, you know, like hitting the notes that I think it was trying to hit, you know? Um, I think I'm also kind of hitting that point in my life. I'm not yet in my thirties. I'm only 28, but, um, that like remembering the good old days, uh, in reference to being like in high school, even though that was not a super great time, but there's a nice nostalgia to it. And I, I like how Watertown gets across that feeling of like, oh, when I was a kid, it, it wasn't great, but I still really think fondly about that time in my life anyway. Yeah, I think for me it was um I sp- I think uh, like a lot of people I spend too much time on Twitter and I would occasionally see people who would who I still see it. People tweet things like um shout out to the weird kids who are still recovering from the trauma of ostracization in their youth or whatever they're going to say like um and I, I guess like you could frame a lot of things that I 
I could frame a lot of things that I experienced in my youth as you know a traumatic experience, but um, I think it, for me anyway, it's it's about like how you want to frame something. And I mean, at this at this point in my life, I don't want to frame it as a trauma that I'm still trying to get over. Like my dad and I had this falling out when I was like 19 because I dropped out of school, came home, had all my stuff packed in my car, and he was like if your car's packed and you're not in college, just go back out to your car. And, and like he had his own stuff going on. I had my stuff going on and we have a good relationship now, but it was, it's like, I'm not going to harbor all of this resentment this far into my life. Um, when they they were growing experiences too. And, and it, I think it's more on how we want to frame something in our past than, um, I mean, you can choose to look at it as this traumatic event, but you'll never be someone who, for me, I, I want to speak about myself. Uh, I don't want to project on anyone else, but um, I would never be someone who had recovered from trauma if you're still thinking of it as trauma. Mm. I, for me, I w- I'm not going to be able to, if I'm still like harboring that, I'll never recover from it. So it's... Um, try to frame it as something different i guess right yeah i i like the idea of framing things i at one point I, I remember i was talking to my wife about like anxiety or depression or something and I, I said something to the effect of like well if our perception is our reality then you just reframe everything until you can accept whatever it is reality is for you and obviously that's easier for some people than other people but i mean kind of in that same way like i'll go back and watch videos my friends and i made and it's like wow these guys weren't nice to me but i still remember having fun making these videos i still remember having fun sitting in a basement drinking mountain dew and playing smash brothers so like i wouldn't ever go back there to that time like if i could time travel i would go somewhere else but um it is a lot more fun to think about you know, playing Smash Brothers in a basement on an 80 degree day than it is thinking about how, you know, somebody wasn't very nice to you a couple times or something like that. Um, yeah. But kind of projecting that onto a town is interesting. Somewhere, oh, it's in, it's on like the back of the book, I think. It's, um, it's about loving something that will never love you back. Uh, and I really like that idea. Um, can you kind of expound on that idea of like loving something that can't love you back? Uh, for whatever reason, I, and and it's probably because I'm from there. Um, but it's, it's just that for whatever reason, I go against my, my best interests and, just have this fondness for this, um, you know, poor town in, in upstate New York. And the town has, it, it's just a town. It's nothing, but I've, um, you know, we, I talked about like not putting art on a pedestal, but I've totally done that to, to Watertown, New York. And in my mind, treated it as this place that is like an, like an anchor for me. Um, this, in spite of the fact that you know every job I worked there, I absolutely loathed and 
didn't I never made more than like eight bucks an hour um, after you know promotions and you know I, there there aren't stellar memories but still like for for whatever reason um, it it's just where my heart is yeah and, or um, it's it's difficult to articulate and I feel bad because I I've you know, I listen to your show and I'm not as, um, like I'm not as good as like cohering my thoughts on things as some of your other, like I listen to Jackie S and it's like, Oh, Oh shit. Um, yeah. she's, she's, she's an exception, not a standard. I don't think anyone should <laughs> like, that's, you know, that's PhD level getting interviewed, I think. But yeah, she, she was, uh, she was great. And Noah Cicero is, was, uh, stellar as well but I'm, and I'm not uh yeah i'm definitely not as good as 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 that at articulating you know what i mean about loving something that would never love me back um it's i don't know it's like driving by my old house that i grew up in um when i was up there last time and just seeing like trees that were like knocked down and the house that was next door had burned to the ground and um just like remembering that and thinking like oh i could make something of this then why would i mm-hmm. um no. Yeah. no one here is going to appreciate that and no one can actually like like i have so many friends who moved away i don't actually know anyone who's still there mm-hmm. i guess i do because people were coming up to me while i was in this bar so yeah uh, it's it's weird well, Watertown kind of sounds like the perfect hometown, you know, like it seems like you were there at just the perfect time and and got out at the perfect time and you get to like experience this like perfect small townness, um, you know, and still get out, but not be out in the way that kind of matters. And uh you know, you know i i've i've been thinking a lot about like mysticism and mystical experiences and something and stuff like that and and the idea of like loving something that will never love you back or even reading about somebody like saying something like that kind of hits that chord for me like it is kind of unfair to be like okay explain that because it is something that you just kind of intrinsically know like um because I, I both have that and don't have that. I live, like, two streets down from the very first house I ever lived in as a baby, right? Like, What's um, that like? Well, it's weird because I have memories of being inside the house. I also have a, a memory, and it, it might be a corrupted memory, as all memories are, of, of going back there as a small child, like with my mom and and maybe my dad going back there knocking on the door saying hey we used to live here can we take a look around or something like that and then going into the house um but my parents moved kind of like on the other side of the city um and i lived there and then when my wife and i bought our first house it just so happened to be like within walking distance of the first house i ever lived in and i've driven past it and unlike you, I don't know which one it is. Like my parents have told me the address and the number just floats out of my mind. So like, I kind of have this inkling that it's this red brick house. Um, 
and I, I, you know, if I put in just a modicum of effort, I could figure out what house it is and I could have a similar experience of that. But, um, you know, we only lived there until I was like two and a half. So like all the memories I have are just like blue carpet. And so now I see blue carpet and I'm like, aha, that's home. That feels like yeah. home. But beyond that, you know, blue carpet, red bricks, maybe a toy or something. Um, but my parents still live in the house that I grew up in, in a very meaningful way. And they've been talking about moving for years, but haven't done it. And so maybe after they move, if I ever find myself in like that suburb again, I'll get to have that experience of like, oh, that tree's not there anymore sort of thing. Um, but yeah, like I have, I've moved out of my hometown in that I don't expect to see somebody from high school when I'm walking around anymore. Um, mm -hmm. But I can still drive to my parents' house easily. So it's that's a weird sort of thing to be like out of it, but still very much in it. Yeah, I can, I can see that. Like you're still relatively close. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess it's like, um, I, I don't know what it, I can't speak to your experience, but it's, it's like, um, I don't know if you ever get, um, I don't know if you ever get nostalgic for like past relationships or anything. Mm. Um, but, but sometimes I'll, I'll think about like, you know, relationships that I've been in and I will, still feel something like love for that person but it's not like i i would never want to talk to that person again mm -hmm. but it's in my mind they are still that person like from 2008 or you know 2005 or whatever and and i'm not the same person i was but um you can still i guess it's it's love it's it's like romanticism like you're just loving the idea in your that you've projected in your mind of the place um or, or a person and it can't love you back because it doesn't actually exist. Mm -hmm. Something like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's may, maybe it's just that you're like remembering that feeling of love. Right. So like the, the love is attached to that person, but what you're feeling is just like the memory of it. And because it's yeah. there, it has to like go in a direction. So it just goes in the direction that it was, going in before when it was there um you and i have had a brief exchange about our our mutual sort of amateur interest in zen and i wonder if that has affected how you you know have framed all of this that we've mentioned and everything that's in the book i i'm i think i mean i i would be lying if i didn't take that into consideration when you know, during the, during the time that I was writing this, especially like I was, um, I think that was, uh, my memory could be off on this. <laughs> and, uh, I, if I'm remembering correctly, it might've been last summer that we had that exchange around the time that I was writing this, I was doing a lot of sitting, um, sitting Zazen and I had gone up to Watertown and I would start in the morning, sit, do my work and then kind of just wander around. And 
I'm I do wonder if if all if that practice had anything to do with with the outcome of the book. Um, I mean, it was something that I was doing, so it must have had some effect. Um, but you know, who can say? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the fun bit that the the Zen people get to say is that it doesn't do anything. But if you yeah. do it a lot, right? Maybe you'll something notice happens. something. Yeah. Um, For me, I think I I don't even know if it's as if it's if it's Zen specifically that that the sitting works for me or i mean it's just sitting that's literally what it translates to but i think it's a it's a discipline thing for me Mm. if if i if i sit for 30 minutes in the morning when i wake up and i haven't had breakfast or anything yet and then i go through like i'm gonna have so much more patience going through my work day and so much more patience with this poem isn't working out like i'm this that's going to be so much easier on me and and my mind is going to be so much better at handling the stupid distracting anxious shit that comes at it um i i don't even know if if i could label it buddhism when i do that or if it's like if it's or zen i'm just like training my brain to not focus or focus or something uh it's it's uh like like definitely amateur but it's it's a it's more of a patience exercise than anything for me i mean you're you're sitting in a weird position looking at a wall and that's it uh, if, if if that doesn't teach you patience i don't i don't know what, what does yeah that's for sure yeah it's it's amazing yeah. to me that i i love at least the idea because if we're being honest, you know, I don't, I don't sit nearly as much as I used to. Um, but I love the idea of the practice so much. Like there's something so great to me about like, all right, so you sit and you stare at a wall and when thoughts happen, you don't worry about them and that's it. And you do that every day forever and nothing happens. Like, isn't that so cool? Because it's, it's so like opposite, um, you know, everything else that you get promised spiritually you know i spend way too much time on on the reels feature on instagram and there's so many like witchy stuff and new spirituality stuff that's like just kind of pop psychology but with a flowy dress um yeah that like there's way too many promises there's there's um you know i don't i don't want to be promised anything except that if i do it i will have done it and you know because then if something happens that's really cool and if nothing happens i'm not disappointed by it because i didn't expect anything to happen because you sold it as nothing's going to happen when you do this as opposed to you know um i don't i don't know if you do some telemic alistair crowley something or other you get to meet with demons and speak to angels and stuff like that I've never, uh, never, never read any Crowley, but um, I did read a biography on Led Zeppelin once. So <laughs> that's about as close as I've got. Basically, the same thing. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, yeah, there's something admirable about a an almost a hundred percent a practice that is almost a hundred percent of the time 
completely solitary unless you go to like uh you know uh zendo or something but you know it, it there's something admirable about just doing nothing and and that's it um i mean so much especially like you're a writer um there's so much uh, uh, that goes into that that involves an audience or like you know seeking an audience that when it comes to a zen practice it's like oh this rules like um i can get behind that like you don't have to like seek out people to watch you do it mm-hmm. or anything just you just do yeah absolutely i'm not um super familiar with your writing outside of this book have you do you have like poems places or other books or anything like that um i've written a couple of um i wrote a few essays that like i mean essays in the uh the personal essay sense um that i um that i had a lot of the stuff from this book was published either through soft cartel neutral spaces or um back patio like earlier versions of it so some of my stuff's on there um i've had one piece on expat and um something else that was um it was this sad attempt at a um at a travel essay Mm. that i wrote for um and i submitted it to this uh, stone canoe journal that is published out of syracuse new york and it's for people who've lived um above the Hudson Valley at some point in there. Like, it's like, you just have to have lived in the Hudson Valley. I'm like, all right, well, that's me, if anyone. So I submitted it and, um, yeah, I'm, I kind of, I'm not really a big fan of it anymore. That Mm. essay, because I was, I think I was reading way too much David Foster Wallace at the time. Ah. And I had like, I'd ape the footnotes thing. And now I'm like, ah, I don't know. It's, it's kind of like his, it's like his thing unless you can like really make it work in like an academic type of type of way. Yeah. You know, knock it off. Yeah. Oh but, man. Yeah, we all went through the David Foster Wallace phase. Yeah. The important part is getting out of it, right? Uh, yes. I saw someone say something on Twitter like I like David Lynch, but the people who think he's the end all be all of like experimental filmmaking need to maybe watch more than two movies ever sort of thing. And like you know David Lynch is always going to be my favorite director unless Peter Greenaway comes out with the best film ever like next year or something like that. But like those two guys kind of have similar positions as like they can be the doorway to something really beautiful or they can be an end point that's kind of like disappointing that you end there, right? Like, yeah, because David Foster Wallace you know uh like long sentences paragraphs that go on for pages the footnotes thing like there's um there's a lot to be said for literary maximalism especially these days you know like we're we're in a very minimal sort of time um mm-hmm. that there there can definitely be something said for writing a lot about something small um but man oh man if you get stuck on david foster wallace um you're missing out i think agreed yeah it's it's a it's another one of those things too where um you know 
he's got the reputation to like have people read him, but it, it takes a, like, I couldn't get in. I, I read, uh, the corrections by Franzen and house of leaves, but, um, is it Daniel Lusky mm-hmm. and didn't really do it for me. I don't know if, if I was just at the right place in time in my life to, to appreciate Wallace, but so many of the, um, I mean, uh, maximalist writers just sort of, uh, it, go- it brings me out to that thing. Like I've got so much to do today. You know, mm-hmm. I've got, I've got to, I've got to go to work. I'm probably going to end up working overtime. I don't have time to read you know, a thousand page tome. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, I guess if you can make it through it, it's worth it. Yeah, I've I've owned it for years and haven't read it, so we got it. Like, I have this thing with the classics. He's really just chewing on a box back there. I don't know if that's coming through in the audio, but my dog's just chewing on a box, and I can't get him to stop. I don't don't hear anything. Oh, good. All right. Well, in case you do, he's chewing on a box. He's fine. Um, I have this thing with with the classics that um, I read them out of like a duty to myself to have read them. It's not so much a clout Mm -hmm. thing, especially because the people that I run with, like nobody cares that I've read Germinal, you know, like that doesn't make anybody think I'm cool. In fact, you know, I'd I'd say I'm more likely to have somebody scoff at me for having read Emil Zola or something like that. But, you know, if Barnes and Noble is selling it for $5 and it's in their classics line, it's probably worth reading to myself to at least maybe understand something about literature that I'm not going to get from a whole bunch of snarky people on Twitter. So I spend a lot of time, probably more time than I want, like reading old stuff like that um, in, in the hopes that I will open a door for myself to somewhere else. Um, I don't, I don't know, like what kind of stuff do you read? Do you read widely? Is it just indie lit stuff? Uh, I, I don't read as much indie lit as I probably should. I think I buy more indie lit than I actually read. Um, I, I, it's an eclectic selection. I think I, I've like right now I'm reading this book that my wife suggested called the coddling of the American mind, which is, it's like a, a book, um, that was there. It was an Atlantic essay. And then in like 2013, and then they expanded it into a, into a study or book or something. But um, I mean, I've read like talk like classics, like Moby Dick, and like two pages of Leaves of Grass, five dollar Barnes and Noble sale. Uh, that's how I got those. But uh, I, when I was growing up, I think I was definitely what women of Twitter hate. You know, Lit Bro, Bukowski, Hunter S. Thompson, um, you know, Kerouac, and all that, and um, perfect thing to read when you're like 17, 18 and it's another one that you have to like move beyond it. Um, I don't know, recent stuff, like really into Bourdain. Um, so I've read, I just read a uh, cook's tour, kitchen confidential picked up medium raw, but I haven't read it yet. Um, Don Carpenter's hard rain falling. I liked a lot. Hmm. And then of course there's the indie lits. Um, you know, Kevin's books, Zach's books. Right. 
Yeah. Um, I wonder if... This is probably not a super hot take. I wonder if the autofic thing is sort of a... If that can be traced back to, like, Kerouac-type stuff. Because I, have, I haven't read Kerouac. I've watched a documentary about him. Um, and said, oh, that sounded like a pretty cool guy. And, and never read any of his stuff. But I, I wonder if that's... I wonder if there's a lineage there. Because I feel like autofic oh. kind of came out probably more from like alt lit which i don't know what like the genetic code is but i bet you i could draw somebody could draw a line yeah i i would i would say as much as people hate on that that group it has to have come from all it has to have been like like spawned from that you know at some point um i know it's yeah, like Bukowski and and Kerouac, like they both just sort of like it seemed like they both sort of wrote on the spot. Like there was no like thesaurus or anything. It was just whatever came out, and um, you can sort of see that flow in someone like Scott McClanahan. Mm. And I mean, it he's he's definitely a lot funnier when when he's writing, but. And it seems like he would have probably read a shitload to uh, to have been able to to pull that off without seeming uh, hacky doing it. Right. Oh, he's married to Julieta Scoria. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Have you read any Scott stuff? I haven't. No, I've. I'm looking now, um, like at the books that he's published, and I've, you know, hovered around his stuff for a while but never pulled the trigger on it one of my friends um that from watertown actually who he moved to minneapolis but he actually put me on to scott mcclanahan he sent me this amazon link to like i just read scott mcclanahan's the sarah book and you have to get your hands on it because i think that you're really gonna love it so i did and i'm like holy shit first page i'm like this is hilarious and it's it's one of those like it's sad but it has heart and it's funny but it has heart and that's um immediately had to like read Hill William after that and then got into Sam Pink and just it was a downward spiral from there you know looking up I think I actually at one point googled alt lit and this was in 2016 Ooh. uh yeah so I, I'm uh, I'm definitely not as uh, you know in in the scene as as some of the other people in in the scene. Right. Well, I think just about everybody I've interviewed who has been associated with that has been like, yeah, that I didn't I didn't think of myself like that. Like I just had friends who were online a lot who wrote, and that's what everybody grouped us together as. So, you know, I mean, clearly it wasn't like the surrealists, right? There wasn't a uh, um there there wasn't a like an alt lit manifesto and if there was i'm sure half the people who would have been ascribed to it would have said ugh get that away from me yeah i don't even know if like i see people sometimes talk about the the lit community i don't even know if that's a thing if if it is it's 
you know, it, it's it's like the the online lit super community, and then it's just it's an umbrella term for all of these smaller, you know, fractured communities. I don't know. Um, you have, you know, the expat crew, and then there's the, um, you know, I don't know the clash book slide. I don't know if there's like if you want to say like the the minimalist and then the maximalist crew if you want, but yeah. there's definitely like circles now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's just one. Um, it can't just be one monolithic thing. Um, yeah. I think that's how there ends up being so much tension mm. when discussing it. I, I think you're right. I, th- I think that makes sense. And it does seem to be grouped primarily by publishers, which I suppose makes sense. Like, I think that speaks to the curational prowess of those editors to be able to not just publish somebody because they have a thousand Twitter followers, but to really pick and choose, you know, who, who they're getting at. And then, you know, there's, there's definitely like kind of the groupings of like these three presses, like all get along and then these ones don't. But I think, I think the tension could be okay. One of the things that I find is that I have to do an awful lot of research anytime anybody starts talking about there being drama. Do you do you find this too? I don't know how many people you follow on Twitter, but someone people are always like, "Oh man, you know, so, the person who always does this would just popped into my DMs to this 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 and this." And I'm like, "Oh man, I don't know who this is in reference to." <laughs> like oh, I I sometimes see stuff like that and I'm the same way. I don't like I guess I could speculate any, you know, that it's any one of like a dozen people, but I also don't care. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I've I'm trying to, I'm trying with with little results to look at Twitter less, but mm. it's it's like I I don't really I don't participate in I try not to participate in the uh, whatever drama comes up because by you know, three hours from now, I'm not going to know what's even happening. Right. Like, I, I'll, I'll sign off and then look back again and you know, something will have happened or three or four more people would have like chimed in and then it just gets carried away. Right. Um, so I, I, yeah, I don't, it's, it's difficult. There's too much, there's too much internet going on. I also follow a lot of um, like Philadelphia comedy people as oh. well. So it's, it's like, I'll sometimes get like, this this writer is a piece of shit to me in my DMs, but then I'll get like, so I'm watching Austin Powers for the fifteenth time this month, and it's like, all right, this is what I came for. I love it. I I think that's fantastic. I uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think you mean yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. Oh my god. <laughs> we. My, I guess sometime during the pandemic. So either last week or a year ago my wife and I watched all the Austin Powers movies uh not like in in a day but maybe in a week or two and at some point I was just sitting alone in a room and my wife appears in the doorway and just goes yeah baby and runs away <laughs> and it was hell yeah <laughs> one of my my most favorite memories that I'll never forget uh yeah that's that was us probably two weeks ago so good I'm still I'm still reeling from from the experience I mean uh, I'm. I don't want to be one of those like you could never do that today, people. But you could. I mean, I couldn't imagine 
that happening today, like here's a spy from the sixties, but now he's in the nineties. No idea what's going on. (laughs) And he's horny. And that's the movie. That's the movie. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like the, you couldn't make that today argument, like does have a place. Um, I, I really enjoyed uh, Lindsay Ellis's video about like Mel uh, Brooks and and that sort of thing, but I was surprised at how unoffended I was at the Austin Powers movies. Like I, I, I thought they had a surprising amount of heart for like the jokes that I remember people repeating in school and um, like not a lot of really offensive stuff, and it's kind of all at the expense of Austin. Like he's a gross chauvinist, but like, that's the joke is you're laughing at him being a gross sex pest. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, no one else is, I mean, unless it's like another Mike Myers character, no one else is usually the butt of the joke. Um, I mean, there's definitely some fat jokes that don't, uh, Mm. maybe don't so well, but uh, in the, especially in the sequels, but, I mean, even still, I feel like the, uh, you know, like the the fat bastard character, like even toward the end, like there there's still something of there's some heart there. I mean, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it twenty years later, but <laughs> I mean, like they have all of these jokes about him being fat through the movie, and then they just have this like um, this heartfelt moment about like an eating disorder, mm-hmm. essentially. That I mean, I don't see a lot of that in comedies now yeah yeah you can just pivot from like raunchy joke to here's a really heartfelt moment for you yeah and i mean i think i think comedy is in a weird place right now i talked about this with zach on where where he was talking about my book on on the show um which was surreal but the idea of comedy to me and like what it's supposed to do i think i think it's very lost right now and i guess you you follow more comedy people than me um and was it you on twitter who said you had no interest in watching the new bo burnham thing that was me that was i hope, you. I hope that i i know it's good i know that people love it but um i just it's because i i've seen so many people say this this comedy special made me cry mm. and and i i I also didn't really enjoy. I, so I watched um, Hannah Gadsby's Nanette, and I didn't. It, it wasn't for me, and I know that there's an audience for it. It's just not for me. Um, but I just, I think at right now, anyway, I'm I'm definitely more in the mood for something that is just going to be more jokey than and just like aim for laughs than something with the express intent of. Um, teaching me a lesson or or something like that and maybe i could i could be completely um misinterpreting what bo burnham special is because i haven't seen it i I don't have a i don't have a right to an opinion on something i haven't seen but i just have a feeling that you know it's probably not for me Mm. yeah have you seen it yes um and it has it has really stuck with me um, in a way that his other two Netflix specials didn't. Um, but okay. I suppose 
sort of in the way that like eighth grade did, but to a higher degree. The, I actually did. I really enjoyed eighth grade, actually. Cool. Um, I think, I mean, obviously the concept is kind of gimmicky um, and, you know, it's very, very 2020, very pandemic, but there's, I think I enjoy the music more. I've, I've definitely listened to the album, the accompanying album several times. And I don't think like I'm tempted to watch it again. Um, but maybe like with the sound off sort of thing, like in a very film school sort of way, because it's a beautiful special. He, he, I was looking him up on IMDb because he hasn't done any comedy in a couple of years, but he's, he has a ton of, um, directorial credits for comedy specials so he has like an eye for visuals um that you know when you're very focused on one set you Mm -hmm. can do a lot of things with it there's two jeffrey bezos songs and the second one he's like in a ghillie suit with sunglasses on in the dark with like um, kind of red patterned lights rotating around him and it's a very um, low angle and like that type of thing is just that's the definition of comedy to me it's a very like weird al um, stupid and absurd uh, which is again that's kind of my my bag when it comes to things trying to make me laugh can we just do Austin Powers puns for the rest of the <laughs> yes for the rest of the conversation I think we should um but beyond that like as an artist the Bo Burnham inside special was hashtag relatable I guess right because it's it's about trying to work when it's hard to see a point to work you know, it, it makes people cry, I think, because you watch a man with depression get worse depression over the course of 80 minutes. And, um, you know, I don't I don't even consider Bo Burnham a comedian. He he does tragedy. You know, he's a stand up tragedy guy. I think if I uh, if I watch it, I will watch I'll, I'm going to watch it for the production value. And because I, I have heard that just based on that alone it's worth it mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll probably go into it without comedy in mind um e- even if it even if it has the intention of being funny i think i will um prior like make make comedy a second priority when when i'm looking yeah at that yeah you know it- like, I didn't think eighth grade was funny either. Um, right. I, I loved it. it. It was definitely, it was, it was a drama mm-hmm. and I loved it as this coming of age slice of life. Yeah. Um, film. People call inside a comedy special because they didn't know what else to call it. They didn't know how else gotcha. to market it because it's a guy alone in a room singing, singing songs. What do you call that movie? You know, like right. <laughs> A, a mental health decline documentary like nobody will watch that that's that's an awful way to uh to describe a film except if you want people like me to watch it i guess because i would totally watch that i'd feel bad about it but i'd watch it um we, we've got they should have called it they should have called it bow behave <laughs> you've been sitting on that one 
Oh man. I, I just came up with like two minutes ago and I was like, oh I gotta We're holding it. We gotta hold it. Bo behave. <laughs> That's so good. Um I don't know. <laughs> we've know. we've gotten so I've far away from this. your work, I don't know how to how to rerail the train. <laughs> there were moments when I laughed reading your book. Um and we we have talked about it being sort of a you know free form writing experience or something like that but yeah um i don't i don't know if if i would go so far as to say that there's jokes in the book but there's funny stuff um yeah Viggo Mortensen is that something that you're kind of like keeping in mind too like i don't know cuz cuz you're balancing lightheartedness with not i mean even the first piece talks about that thing where you're you're driving by and you're like this used to be great kind of not super great right now and your wife is like i don't i don't see it i don't get it so in the editing process since it was sort of written not necessarily with a collection in mind um how did the editing process go how did like ordering the pieces go and things like that choosing what to keep and what to get out of the book that was a lot of fun uh i actually didn't throw together the editing until about like i didn't i didn't actually finalize the order of it until probably january or february um because i had no I, I i just when i sent it over to zach originally it was none of the prose pieces were in there mm. um that was the initial draft was literally just poems that I had written on my phone and some of them had nothing to do with Watertown. It was just like, like random, like silly shit that I wrote and they would, they inevitably were cut because they Mm -hmm. had no place. But, um, I think as, as those were getting cut from it, I also remember that I had, Racing Against Ghosts or uh, the Timeshare piece uh, that had been published a year or two prior, I think 2018, 2019, whenever Soft Cartel was around. Mm. And uh, I was like, oh, wait, I can just take these old pieces and they would fit perfectly between these two poems and they would be great as like buffer pieces between as like lighthearted bits between silly bits. And I could do that. The the first and last pieces didn't come until probably January or February um, as like anchors to sort of bookend the actual overall piece to kind of give it a. Um, I think Corey Bennett read read it early on, and he was like, "Holy shit, it was a tour!" Mm-hmm. And and I was like, "Yeah, like I kind of wanted to like." so much of it is about like being in a car too. And I, I don't think I realized until I was cutting things out, like I'm leaving in a lot of poems about like being inside cars. What if I was just giving my wife a tour through this town and through memory and in, in a sense also giving the reader that too. So that, that definitely came, that was in, in like I considered that when I was, you know, writing the final bits of it and you know editing it that I needed to have, something to make it move more fluidly is fluidly a word 
God. Oh, sure. My first day. All right. Sure. Hey, the <laughs> words do what we tell them to do. We're the That's ones right. who, who form <laughs> language. How That's many right. words did Shakespeare make up? And everybody loves him. So I think, you know, I, I think your literary prowess is based on how many words you make up. Got it. Um, Never going to stop now. Good. I just tried to make up a nonsense word in my mind, and it didn't work. I just completely blanked. I was going to try to, like, do a bit there, and it just didn't happen for me. Um, we might have touched on this, kind of, but I'm curious if you had any sort of writing epiphanies or, or literature epiphanies in your life that, like, really sort of, like, broke you through. Um, you, what, what do you mean? Do you mean like, you know, I was reading something and I was like, oh, this is what I want to do or yeah, I'm um, kind of something like that. Or just like, just like, I suppose so. Like that I talk about it a lot, like reading Cormac McCarthy and being like, oh, wait, you don't have to use punctuation or, oh yeah. Or, Probably. um, you know, reading House of Leaves and just being like, oh, you can put the words wherever you want on the page. Like, it doesn't matter, sort of thing. I think um, you mentioned Cormac McCarthy's punctuation. I think for me, it might have been Hubert Selby Jr., Last Isaac to Brooklyn, um, because I, it might have just been my understanding, like reading it, like this guy doesn't have an education. Mm. He's using, you know, or he has a broken keyboard. But I think I didn't have... I had no intention of going to college and I had no intention of, I, I mean, I, I took a, I took a writing class in, in high school and my teacher was like, you better watch out Dan. Cause community college, community colleges reject people too. And <laughs> so, so, um, so I, I had no, I don't know. I guess I was like, yeah, I've got no future doing this as much mm. as I like to, you know, you know, I was reading like Chuck Palahniuk and stuff then as, you know, as much as I had to consume this stuff, uh, it's probably not in the cards for me, but then, um, it was probably shortly after I graduated high school that I read last exit to Brooklyn and realized like, Oh, you don't actually have to have a, you know, this doesn't have to be a science. You don't have to have this, like, like a PhD or, you know, like a um, MFA and be able to be able to do this. You can just do it. Um, I mean, this this guy is writing about some uh, some grotesque um, subject matter, but it's it's also very um, also very minimalist. I mean, he's he's not using punctuation the way that it should be or the way that I'm taught. And clearly, this has been published. It's it's a success in some way, so you know it can be done. I think that might have been you know, the closest thing to a breakthrough for me is that you can literally just do it. And there, there isn't necessarily a gatekeeper, but I mean, there's, there's value in just doing something, even if it's not going to be, if there's no guarantee to it. PBBJ. Horror movies and peanut butter. My parents were never home after school, so I'd waddle my little doughy body to the blue house next door. Our neighbor Ralph, the 50-something John Lennon lookalike, didn't mind. 
He taped all the Nightmare on Elm Streets and made a mean peanut butter and jelly. I found out later it was plain old butter that he'd lightly toast on each slice before spreading the main ingredients, which melted onto the still warm Wonder Bread. Clouds of Jif Creamy crawled through the dirty house, clawing its way to me as I sat before a box TV set and a coffee table littered with beer cans. The charred movie murder villain made his way to, before tracking jumps made a victim out of the cassette. Ralph's daughter Sally was my age. She would come by from her mother's for a few hours and we'd eat PBBJs and play with her WWF action figures. She had Brett the Hitman heart on her wall and her dad got her into the Beatles by playing old records. PBBJ is for fast kids with busy parents. Careless. My mom called me a few years ago to tell me Sally died. Ralph's back went out and his house faded and chipped to a dull gray. VHS bit the dust and so did the thing that came after it. If I open a thing of country crock in the gif jar, maybe I can fire up the stove and bring it all back. <laughs> <laughs> 